Welcome back to another episode of Kendall vs. Kendall, presented by JensenUSA.com, where we explore the world of bikes from a few differing perspectives. If this is your first time joining us in this audio world of bikes, my name is Seth Kendall, a longtime bike mechanic slash shop manager turned social media and marketing guy for Jensen USA. And today I'm joined by my hugely talented but currently injured co-host, Jeff Kendall Weed. Jeff has worked extensively within the brand side of the bike industry and is arguably one of the most innovative riders on two wheels. So before we jump into the meat of today's episode, I wanted to welcome you back from Costa Rica. Yeah, I'm standing here in a sling wishing I did not have the sling on and that my shoulder felt normal. So the Costa Rica trip was awesome. It was super quick, 72 hours down there, but we tried to pack a lot into those 72 hours. And before any of these it was a video trip, so the idea was to go someplace new that I, you know, had never been to but had always wanted to go to. And I, you know, I wasn't sure in Central America, South America, where the best spot would be. And there's so many places to go. So I talked to a bunch of folks and they said, hey, look, Costa Rica, it's easy to get to. We've got a lot of good contacts down there. And we know you're going to put together a great video if you head down there. The riding's great. The coffee's amazing. Check it out. It's, it's awesome. totally worthy. So, yeah, I shot the Ibis distributor a phone call and he said, yeah come down here. And this is a guy I've been trying to chat up for years at WTB because I was hoping to grow WTB sales in Costa Rica and I knew nice, he yeah. was the guy. So Ibis has been working with him for maybe a year or something now. And he said, definitely come down. So went down there, he introduced us to not just like his buddies, but to everyone in Costa Rica, including guys that ride for his comp competitors, like the... Uh, Oh, man, one of the main guys he showed us around was riding a Focus, and that was imported okay. by a very big competing distributor. But the guy that we were with, Oscar, was like, you know what? We need to grow Enduro as a whole in Costa Rica, right. so I can't be super choosy and only connect you to Ibis guys and my guys. You have to meet everyone because the whole scene needs to grow together. And I think that, awesome. yeah, that whole community theme was really strong the whole time we were down there. And there's massive mountains, big volcanoes. We went to three very different spots, had Lots of amazing coffee. We stayed at a cabin up in the mountains around a 9,000 foot elevation. And there was cool. coffee beans being grown all around the cabin. The guy down the street was doing the roasting. And we literally had coffee that morning that was grown on site. So that was rad. On the, amazing. It was really cool. <laughs> on the last day of riding down there, it started pouring rain. And I hit a slick spot of clay, of super hard packed clay. And nothing had been that hard packed. It was all like just perfect loamy dirt and then out of nowhere some one weird hard spot wheels washed out from under me landed on the shoulder broke the acromion which is like the front of the scapula I yep. believe and it's just yeah it's it's broken off and they said no surgery at this point but yeah it does not feel good <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, uh, I've had several shoulder injuries over the years, um, none where I've had to have surgery, luckily, but several AC separations, and I feel your pain fully. I actually had one earlier this year, um, pretty mild one, but it took, it took several weeks to recover, so uh, wishing you the best on that. Do you have a recovery time? Yeah, I don't know. They said about two months, and I, I did have an AC mm. separation with this, but it was a, a pretty minor one, and then the other shoulder, the good shoulder, that's the example, has been separated far are worse many years ago so yeah they match now <laughs> you got the nice droop going on yeah Classic. on both sides so <laughs> yeah. it's all good Awesome. Well, stoked to have you back, even if it is injured. Um, you know, we're super excited to see what did come out of uh, that short video trip. Just can't wait to see that content and everything. And uh, we'll be looking for that on your YouTube, Instagram, all those different places. 
Thanks. It's going to be rad. You'll be stoked. Should we move yeah. into this podcast? Yeah, let's get podcasting. Cool, cool. So this so. whole podcast is aimed at exploring the world of bikes and discussing who, what, how, why, all about this most rad addiction. Um, if you guys haven't yet, check out the earlier episodes. They're up on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play. Uh, leave us feedback for any future topics you want us to cover. We're super receptive to that. And today, we're going to take on a question that came up in our last set of episodes, and we're talking about wheel sizes and standards, since a lot of those standards came along with those wheel sizes. And basically, the question was asked, should your bike accentuate your strengths or hide your weaknesses? Yeah, so this question actually came up in a conversation between me and my really good buddy, who I've mentioned here several times, Andy McMullen. Um, and during one of our many weekly phone calls where we were mostly discussing bikes and uh, van projects that we're working on, Andy and I um, started talking about like this, this question of should we play to our strengths or should we play to our weaknesses when we're building bikes? And so Andy and I are both pretty evenly talented riders, but in very different ways. I lean towards the jumping and descending side while he leans towards the techie and nimble side. Uh, we both wanted to improve in, in the areas that we're not talented in. And so this is where this question came up. Like, do you cater to your talents or do you, do you build your bikes in such a way that they challenge your weaknesses so that you improve those areas? So Jeff, with that kind of a background and concept here, what do you see as some of the most key areas where a rider can either enhance his or her strengths or cater to improving their weaknesses. Right, there's so many different categories we can apply this idea to. And I think we gotta kinda of back up a little bit and think like, all right, what is this rider doing? Are they a competitive racer? Are they a Sunday mm -hmm. shredder? Do they ride twice a week with their friends, drink beer on the trail and just wanna have a good time? Like, what's going on here? So first, there's that. But um, there's several aspects that we gotta talk about in this discussion. So let's get down to kind of the first instance. So at the very basic level, should folks be considering a full suspension bike or just a hardtail? Yeah, most definitely. Um, you know, this has been a question I've asked myself a ton over my riding career. And generally, the answer for me has always been a full suspension. And this is because I love the down and I love jumping and getting gnarly. Um, but again, my buddy Andy challenged me on this and forced me in a sense to end up purchasing several hardtails now over the years. And I have to say, man, like it has done wonders for what I am able to do both on a hardtail, but actually my riding has improved a ton on my full squishes because of it. So for me, um, the answer is both. But I realized that we have to really like ask the question of like, yeah, who are you as a rider? Are you are you out there to like get shreddy and narnar? And if so, um, are you new to this? Because a full squish is going to be much more for forgiving. It inspires confidence. It allows you to go faster and bigger with less consequence generally. Uh, the margins aren't quite so tight. Whereas a hardtail will really make you hone in on some of the skills that you need, um, like choosing your line. Um, you know, landing perfectly off jumps and right. popping with really quick responsive rear end, but that margin of error is tighter, yeah, right? So, edge. <laughs> yeah, so you got to ask like, man, is it, which way do I want to go? And so I've actually pushed a lot of people locally um, onto 
decent, um, this is kind of newish writers, but onto decent level full squishes because it allows them to build that confidence early. And then as they grow, I actually push them to pick up hardtails um, so that they can refine those skills once they kind of have their confidence and their, their basics down. And I'm not sure if that's the right method. It's what I've been going with. <laughs> sure, but that method looks at, like their weakness is not being able to have the confidence to really start enjoying right. riding, the confidence to really send it through the rocks. So the full suspension bike is going to help them build confidence. So that's the weakness that the bike is overcoming. And yep. then I was thinking about like folks that come into mountain biking from say a BMX background, like there's a lot of younger yeah. folks that are in this category too, that are really comfortable with jumping on their BMX bike and they're getting into the mountain bike side of things and they're thinking, what bike should I get? If I get a hardtail, I know how to jump it. I can definitely hit all these jumpy trails in this hardtail, no problem. So that's playing to their strength. Yeah. Now if they'd gotten a full suspension bike, it might make cornering a little bit easier with that extra traction. And then braking in a hot hurry bmx bikes yeah you've got to brake and you got to modulate it but you're not looking at different tractions you're not looking at mm -hmm. a bunch of loose rocks in the middle of a berm because that doesn't really happen in bmx so it's like that would be a way for them to uh play over their play to their what hide their weaknesses i guess you could say so mm -hmm. yeah uh man you, there's good arguments for both sides there i came into it from the bmx side so my first bike is a hardtail and that was really playing towards my strengths of you know jumping and all that yeah. And I think that that argument uh, has really played out for me personally in, uh, you know, I've shared that I've joined into the BMX world and poorly. Um, but, you know, I go to my skate park with my little 20 incher and um, it, it, the the translation of skills with that bike and my hardtail are really similar. I mean, they're very different because the wheel size is being so drastically different. But there's a lot of the ways that you pop and pump uh, with that rigid rear end that really uh, plays similarly. And so um, it, it's definitely cool to see that happening in somebody who, you know, I've been riding for a long time and I'm, I'm pretty decent. I don't want to like uh, toot my horn too much, but I'm a decent rider. I'm not the worst person out there. So uh, yeah, I, I think there is something to it that Playing uh, to your weakness really does refine that skill. And then there's something to kind of letting your, your strengths come through or, or giving you that, um, that ability to play to your strengths to refine things. So I think it's two different paths that get to the same conclusion just differently. And so I'm not sure. I think the shared conclusion would be that you have to own more than one bike. You're blowing yes. it if you only have one bike. <laughs> N plus one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But one thing I, I think is worth mentioning too, a lot of like, so getting to the guy who rides twice a week back in the Bay Area, I knew many folks that would do this. And mm -hmm. the riding in the Bay Area is fairly mountainous, lots of 3,000 foot high hills. You could call them mountains if you live on the East Coast, I guess. But yeah. anyhow, that's quite a bit of elevation. And so a lot of folks will do a group ride, say like on a Wednesday night, and they'll all ride up the hill together. And chances are, it's going to be mostly dudes and probably pretty competitive. And they'll probably be chit-chatting and acting like they don't take it seriously but someone's going to get to the top of that climb first so yeah, then someone's strava's ticking yeah there's always a strava thing but, <laughs> but when there's this group ride mentality i could definitely see someone who's looking at all right i'm riding with my buddies twice a week we do this big hill climb ride together or we ride up the mountain for 45 minutes an hour or whatever and then we bomb back down whatever trail and the highlight of the ride is probably the social ride up so they're thinking mm -hmm. should i get the hardtail to be sure i can be at the front end of the pack and you know, should I play to my strengths of climbing in this group or maybe high 
hide the weakness of not being a good climber and getting the better climbing hardtail. Or someone else might say, hey, this group ride, no one's really pinning it on the climb, but everyone's charging the descent. So you got to think about a little bit too what your purpose is for your group. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we see that with the different types of writing, right? Like enduro, like using that literally, not just as a cool term, (laughs) right? Like if you're an enduro rider racer, uh, you know, you definitely aren't playing to the strengths uh, or to the weakness of climbing because that's not a timed stage, right? You're playing to the strengths of your descending. Well, so, I would say that some of these enduro races are so long now. Like I'm seeing some 35 mile long enduro loops. That's a long time to be out true. in the woods. So if you can true. have a 35 pound bike or a 27 pound bike, that 27 pounder would be what half an hour faster overall. Yeah. Yeah. So there, <laughs> man. Is complicated. <laughs> it is, yeah. That's why we're Just talking Just so about you it. know, to the listeners, I'm not sure we have the answer here. We just think this is a really important question to ask at, at so many different levels. Because um, as you can see, you know, we've we've done it a couple of different ways. But yeah, it really comes down to your specific uh, situations and the type of writing you're looking for. And you know, for me, um, I'm always going to cater more towards the all mountain side of things. Um, but with that being said, I find that, you know, I, I like to challenge that because it does build that skill set. Um, so I think it really comes down to, is this about your, um, you know, once a week, twice a week sort of writing? Is this where you're trying to improve a skill set? Like specifically, you're trying to hone in on stuff. Are you a racer? Like, I think those questions are really crucial to be answered in order to figure out what the answer to this is. And the racers have a whole different cup of tea to figure out because there's like the guys that are racing 24-hour events, cross-country things, enduros. And as I was thinking about this topic this morning, it's changed a lot in the last five years. So just five, whatever, 10 years ago, there really weren't enduro races. There was cross-country, there was downhill. People were starting to think about something called Super D, and here and there you'd Mm -hmm. see a dropper seat post. So this is all pretty recent. Excuse me. Uh, (laughs) but yeah so if you're as a a racer I would often come into this with all right what am I going to do am I going to put a build up a really lightweight bike that I can still get down the enduro race course in one piece or am I going to build up a really bomber bike so I can really do well on the gnarlier and more technical sections what's going to end up doing better for me and I've spent but I've spent way too much time putting together both types of bikes the ultra spindly lightweight like 2.2 tires, 120 yeah. travel front and rear, like real minimalist, like shouldn't really be raced in thorough, but at the same time, if there's any climbing involved or any flat sections, that can be like minutes faster than the bigger bike. So, Yeah, and I think this plays out a lot too in the racer category where you have guys who are enduro style racers right where it is kind of a, a mixed thing but it's primarily looking at the downhill uh, times and then you have cross-country riders who are kind of doing the opposite right it's there's less downhill it's more about that overall top speed um and i actually saw a while back a video where um they compared adding a dropper post to an xc bike to see if they could improve their downhill times and it was significant what happened. And I, I sat there going, you know, yeah, dropper post way more than a you know super small carbon seat post on your uh, rigid or hardtail bike. 
But are your gains going to be so much more over your competition, who is probably pretty evenly matched with you on the climbs? Is it going to be so much more beneficial to put a little bit of mass on your bike, add a dropper post, and bomb these sections downhill and make up all that time against your competition? And vice versa for enduro, right? depends on the rider for the cross-country thing, though, because I've, I've raced a ton of cross-country over the years, haven't recently, and I've never been that good at it, but I raced a lot of single-speed cross-country because that plays more to your strengths if you're, like, kind of heavier and musclier mm -hmm. and more into technical stuff. So on the single-speed side of things, I would never run a dropper post on that bike, especially in a race situation. Now oh, my, man, I, lo I love my dropper on my single-speed. <laughs> oh, man, it might be fun to ride with, but I would never race with it because my bike is going to explode. As soon as I start putting that saddle down five inches or whatever, then I can start jumping large sections of trail. Those lightweight little cross-country wheels yeah. that I desperately need on the long climbs, they're not going to survive. If I land it all sideways, they're going to taco. And those yep. light little tires that are 400 grams a piece lighter than my heavier tires, they're great on the climbs, which is where 95% of the race is going to be one-on. But right. they're going to just explode as soon as I hit a rock going way too fast through the rough sections. So I actually am very <laughs> adamantly opposed to putting dropper posts on my own cross-country race bikes because that opens the door to ride the bike beyond its basically level of competency. Fair enough. Yeah, I think that's that's probably a strong argument. Um, you know, I, I'm ride, not, a, I'm kind of an anomaly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I am not a racer. Like I, I'm one of those guys who I enter a race and I get so worked up that I'm just like, <laughs> and then I just, I do terrible in every single race because I'm just too amped and, uh, no, to me, it is all just stress, uh, to all those people out there who like racing, congrats. Like I am just that guy who is, it's just not my thing. And it's funny because I got back into cycling kind of via the road triathlon race scene. And uh, that's where I realized, like, this is way too intense for me. I need a beer and just a cruise <laughs> on my bike. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, it's funny. So I, I have a single speed hardtail um, and I actually way overbuilt my wheels um in fact they're industry nine uh the enduro 305 so 30 mil wide rims and you know big knobby tires and granted i i love my schwalbe tires so they tend to be on the lighter side of tires even though they're race bike that's like more of like an all-around trail enduro style bike almost right yeah but that's that's going to be the closest thing that i get to it okay. so i think that's where you know like even if i were to enter a race I would say I'm going to play to my strengths there because my strength is not going to be about that nimble, um, sprightly climb stuff. Like I'm, I'm solid. I, I can pedal fast, but I'm gonna, I'm going to get smoked by true cross country racers. Yeah. But where I could make up that difference is by playing to my strength and I kind of overbuilding my bike a little bit and being able to take on people in that descent. So that's where I'm going to win if I'm racing. Luckily, I'm not because that stresses me out. I'd still lose too, yeah, but that's all right. Very like polarizing statements. So like, I should probably say something really ridiculous. Like, no hardtail <laughs> should ever have a dropper seat post, but that's not the truth. So if you're building up a a rad shreddy hardtail like that, it would probably be killer in an enduro or a downhill race with the dropper seat post. Mm -hmm. But then if I was racing across country, I wouldn't want it. I just know that in cross-country racing, the climbs are so much more important than all the other sections that I would need to go with the lightweight wheels, the lightweight tires, and 
the no dropper post would have to happen in order to make all the rest of the parts on the bike survive. So yeah, yeah. the type of racing, the type of riding you're doing has a lot into how you set up your stuff. And I think that maybe asks the question then, because like Jeff, clearly you are a hell of a descender. Like you, you know how to throw your bike around all over the place, get totally, uh, you know, brapped out. Like if we just watched one the other day where you literally tripled a, a set of jumps that I would have been jumping every single one of them individually, and you tripled this thing. I mean, you just sent it. It was unreal. So like clearly that's a strength. And so for it. For my view on this, I think, man, yeah, put Jeff on this tiny, spindly little quick bike because he's already going to be fast on the downhills, right? Like, that's already going to be his thing. But I've watched a lot of cross-country races where uh, the racer is actually pretty bad at descending. And, and you can see the seat post is, like, smacking them in the butt and throwing them over the bars, and, and they're, like, grabbing just heaps of brakes. And I wonder, like... For those people, maybe you add an extra 150 grams to your tire and you get a slightly tougher wheel and maybe you do a dropper post, even if it's just a short one, you know, get like something that drops 60 mil or something and just kind of like play to that. The fact that that isn't your strength in that case, you know, sure. and so I wonder, um, you know, I don't again, I don't think there's a clear answer here. Um, uh, you got to figure out where the most gains are. And I think that was what totally. was interesting about this video that I watched is um, they raced a couple of different people who had different strengths and they tried to uh, tailor their bikes to play to their weaknesses so that yeah. they could gain in those other areas. And it was funny because, yeah, the guy who was more downhill oriented was like, yeah, I don't, you know, I'm not rocking a dropper post. I'm on these spindly things. But he was mobbing the downhills, uh, whereas the guy who was cross-country guy actually did the dropper post stuff. And he ended up being quite a bit quicker because he was able to get that seat kind of out of his butt and, you know, <laughs> move the bike around a little faster on there. And so they actually ended up with real even uh, times. Now, with that being said, the guy who was an XC racer, still smoked him on the uphills it yeah. just it was just a thing but it was surprising that like you could see this kind of happen in real life so um now with this being said you know we've talked about dropper posts a little bit about wheel tire combo we've talked about uh gears versus single speed just a touch um you know obviously we we hit it as like a racing but um if there was one component that you thought most clearly defined this type of thinking of either playing to your strengths or or um, catering to your weaknesses which one do you think uh is that component just one component i think it's the wheels with the tires on them i think it's just the rotating okay. mass right yeah. there what do you think Seth? yeah uh i think i mean that's i think that's the one that stands out the most um Again, I think in the racer context, that's the one that probably stands out the most uh, because it is such an, um, a massive amount of rotating weight, you know. And so you can really just feel the difference between a lightweight tire and wheel combo. Um, we have so many options in the wheel tire world now compared to years ago, too. Yeah. And I'm thinking like, you know, it wasn't that long ago where I might have said a short stem and a wide handlebar is more important. But now we kind of have seen that short stems can be climbed with properly, especially if you have a steep seat mm -hmm. tube angle, and wider handlebars have kind of become the norm. So kind of interesting that yeah. things have progressed a lot recently here. 
Yeah, it's funny. I, um, you know, I've bought a couple of more cross-country oriented bikes in recent years, and they're coming with like 780 bars on them. And I'm like, nice. oh, man, I remember. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, uh, those are a little wide for my body. Yeah. Like, I'm going to have to chop that down a bit. Um, but yeah, I think uh, wheels are probably the most noticeable. For me, uh, man, I think I'm like a firm believer in dropper post and... I think that might be one of my most crucial pieces of playing to strengths or weaknesses, you know? And I realize like that one, you can't so much cater it, right? You're either a dropper post or you're not, yeah. you know, there's, there's not like the, the wheel tire combo. Too. Like I walk out my door here on the Galbraith and 95% of bikes are going to have a dropper on them. And if it's that mm-hmm. 5% that don't, 4% are people that don't have the money for a dropper post and they just manually yeah. use their QR. And then 1% are actual true died in the wool cross country folk. Yeah, fair enough. And thank goodness for several of these new brands that are popping out really good dropper posts at much more reasonable prices than we've seen in recent years. I got to plug so, BMW components there because they definitely yeah, please do. <laughs> they are one yeah. of the characters that are doing that and they help Absolutely. me out quite a bit. And I think they've been helping to push this trend. Like I, I, I know from our sales at Jensen, like we we kill it with PNW, and so it's it's great to see that they're they're pushing that that market. So good on you guys. There's your plug. <laughs> so, okay, so awesome. I'm saying that it's wheels and tires, and you're saying it's the dropper seat post. Uh, is it? Do folks often like? So what I don't see on the supplier side is. How often consumers are upgrading just a wheel set versus a complete bike? I got a little bit of info on that over the years, but it's, it's harder for me to really say how often that's happening. Are you actually seeing folks calling in and asking what's a more aggressive, what's a less aggressive wheel set? Yeah, I think, um, you know, we saw that a bit back in the day, um, but I think there's a, a big resurgence on that. Okay. Um, and I think part of what that is, is because uh, we're able to get lighter, tougher, uh, more capable wheel tire combos than pretty much ever before. And, you know, granted, I still think tire tech has a long ways to come before uh, we're just killing it with like innovative things. But man, I remember back in the day, my buddy Joe, <laughs> hey, Joe Yost, um, uh, he had a two point, uh, it was a 2.6 or a 3.0 DH tire. And it was like triple ply and everything. So it was monstrous. Triple ply. Yeah, it was monstrous. And I don't even remember what tire it was. It was hanging in his garage. And I was like, dude. 26 inch or 24 inch diameter? 26, yeah. Okay. So, because this is back in the day. And I was, I was like, dude, where do you even run this? Like, what's the point? And he was like, oh, it's for mammoth only. And it's because it's super rocky and da-da-da. And I was like, okay, cool. And then I was like, how much does it weigh? And he gave, gave a number. I won't recall because I'm terrible with that. But I just remember being like, what the hell? Why would you ever put that on a bike? And now, like, you can pick up these 2.6 and 3.0 tires that are surprisingly light and still pretty darn tough. And I'm not saying they're as tough as that tire, but we're definitely getting to that point where um, wheel tire combos are becoming really hot for our customers to buy because they can take a bike that they love or that has treated them well or is in great shape and basically create a whole new 
experience with it just by swapping out the wheel tires. You can make a bike a lot more capable with a wider rim and a a modern good tire. And then you can make a modern Enduro bike that's a pig on the climbs and the long rides. You can make it into way more of an all-day machine by downsizing, going to a lighter front tire, a more reasonable rear tire, and some carbon rims. So you can really push this one either direction, make a huge change. Yeah, and there's tons of good options in wheels these days uh, that are, you know, relatively reasonably priced, especially when you consider the price of uh, complete bikes, you know. Oh, totally. It's real, it's real easy to justify buying a wheel-tire combo, even if you add a, a, an extra cassette on there so you don't have to swap it every time. Like, you put your rotors, you just have it ready to go. You could have two different wheel sets that make your bike feel, like, night and day different. And I think we're seeing quite a bit of that with customers where it, it allows them, in a sense, to have the N plus one bike equation, totally. but without having the plus one bike, you know? So, uh, yeah, I'm definitely a fan. And I've played around with this. Uh, I've mentioned it before. I had some 27.5 plus wheels um, that I was swapping back and forth with some 29er wheels on my hardtail. And I did that quite a bit, had a lot of fun with it. I definitely ended up settling on the 29ers as my more favorite thing. Okay. But it was really fun as a, an experiment to go yeah, through Yeah, you learn that. a lot with the bigger tires for sure. Yeah, and so. I like just keeping my 29ers to 29s, and I love it when a 27.5 bike can be ridden with 27.5 plus. I just feel like 27 mm-hmm. plus is so much closer to 27 normal. And the 29 versus 27, that's such a big difference that... I don't like having the bottom bracket height change that much on a bike. Most of my bikes yeah. are already so low, they end up getting too low pretty quick if I try to convert them. Yeah, I was, I'm right there with you. You know, I um, I was on a Mojo 3 with the Plus setup, cool. and then I was on this hardtail. And, you know, it was sweet because I could just swap them. But I had read all over, because um, this is pretty early on in the Plus 29er kind of movement of things. I was like reading all these things about, oh yeah, it's 27.5 plus is almost the same as 29. And then I put them next to each other. I was like, not so much yeah. guys <laughs> like so there's <laughs> definitely a bottom bracket drop you know if you have them laying around it's totally worth uh playing around with it you know i think it's a fun experiment but for me i definitely found that i catered back to the specific wheel size that was destined for that bike so that was kind of my leaning yeah. but it was cool to see though that i could uh, play around with the different tire wheel combos on that and just get a totally different feeling bike that played to different strengths or weaknesses that I had going on with that bike. So and a lot of this is getting used to the components too. I remember back in like 2014, I was still building up really lightweight wheels on my bikes and I was racing tons of enduros and the courses weren't very tough back then. So yeah. I could do a lot better in the race by running these thinner little specialized tires. They were like 2.2, maybe a 2.3 on a big day and 600 grams and I was running a mm-hmm. 1300 gram Easton wheel set and the thing was like a rocket ship up all these hills and on these flats, but I couldn't send it because they would just, those tires would tear. They were honestly pretty good for their weight, but I really couldn't send it. And yeah. I did flat a handful of times in races and definitely a ton while training. And, you know, sitting on the side of the trail, putting a tube in and dealing with all that when you're supposed to be doing intervals and it's getting dark, it honestly cuts your workout short. And when you're working full time, you need all the time you can train. So, right. Yeah. Then I started to realize, you know, I need to go. I, I wanted the EWS is up in Whistler 
I remember noticing that all the top guys were on aluminum wheels and they all had freaking gnarly huge tires. And I was like, I'd learned that I could do really well on these more local races with the lighter setup, but the lighter setup couldn't even finish the race at the more aggressive on the more world stage. So I started to try to just get used to the heavier tires and rims. And it took me, man, probably like six months, maybe even a good year to really get used to the full on 1100, 1200 gram tires Mm -hmm. and the bigger, heavier rims. But that was so worth it because now I don't even, I should knock on wood, but I I do bring a spare (laughs) tube most of the time, but definitely any ride shorter than two hours, I'm done bringing a spare tube. Those tires are burly enough. If I do somehow flat it, I can ride it home on a flat and it won't wreck the rim. And yeah. having the aluminum rims lent, I could actually try lower pressure. So anytime it was raining and super slick out, it was a way better setup. And it nice. just depends where you're going. If you're doing EWS courses, that makes a lot of sense. If you're riding your local trails, eh, it's up to you. Yeah, I think that's exactly it, right? Like it, the the answer to this question is not one that we're going to be able to just give outright. There's no, at least in my opinion, there is not a definitive Hey guys, this is what you need to do. This is how you need to build your bikes. Oh, the it is wants to hear that though. <laughs> uh, sorry guys, I'm going to let you down. Wrong but opinions on the internet. Oh goodness, I'm supposed to hear them. <laughs> uh, it's always fun to go to like Pink Bike and just read the comment section. Uh, You're like, "Oh wow, it's so definitive." Um, but yeah, in this case, I don't know that we can do that because everybody's setup and situation is different. I, you know, I'm just about to do my move from the Midwest back uh, to the Pacific Northwest, and man, I, I have no idea what's going to happen with kind of my bike setups because I've been catering them so much to our local trails, and I love my local trails; they're super fun, tons of jumps, really interesting. But man, we have like superhero dirt with almost no rocks and like the occasional route here and there and so yeah (laughs) the occasional one there's not many Uh, (laughs) yeah it's like it's funny because here you know we've got these super punchy climbs that are like 50 to 75 feet like (laughs) they're super short but they're punchy they're super steep and they're very frequent actually you're in kind of these tight rolling hills um and hills is a way overstatement rolling mounds um but because of that you're constantly out of the saddle and you're pegged the whole time so i built my bikes around um kind of that intense uh, it was like a high cardio sort of situation. You never sit down. I, I you know, y- for years so lived in Southern. You don't need a dropper seat post. You just stand up all day. No, we have so many good jumps, son. Keep your seat down <laughs> if you can just climb all these things standing up. Well, and there was a lot of that because for a while I was in between dropper post and uh, yeah, I did exactly that. So, but with that being said, like, uh, you know, I was in California for years and years and years. And there, um, you know, in the San Bernardino Mountains, we would literally start at the bottom of a climb and just climb for thousands and thousands and thousands of feet. And for the most part, you're just sitting and grinding away. And then you yeah. do these big descents. And so I found that when I moved here, I knew I was overbiked already, but I was like, ah, I'll make this bike work. And then I started going, man, this riding is so different. I'm going to have to like change up my bikes in order to cater to 
basically what were my weaknesses at that point. Um, I had to tighten up some of my bars because we were riding in, in uh, trees and stuff like that. And I had to change up my tire selection because the dirt was so grippy that I was actually oversteering into corners. And uh, I actually went to much less grippy tires so that I could get that California drift that I was so used to. And <laughs> You want yeah, to turn man. up the fun factor. I like it. Yeah, so it, it's just it's been such an interesting experience, and now we're you know four years later getting ready to move back to the Northwest. But I haven't ridden the Northwest consistently in years, and so I think I'm going to go through this whole thing again of questioning. Oh, you will. Okay, for sure. You're going to love every second of it too. Yeah. Do I play to my strengths? Do I play to my weaknesses? How do I build my bikes according to that? And I think that's the fun in all this, right? Like, uh, yes, you have to experiment and play around, but I think that's really what makes it so fun. Yeah, so. exactly. And it's a never ending. I mean, some people call it a money pit. I call it never ending life experience. I don't know. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Yeah, because I definitely have spent my fair share. The best thing is to just become a friend of mine, and then you get all the benefits of buying barely used bike parts from me experimenting oh, with stuff for really cheap prices. So. so one thing I think we've seen over the years here are discipline-specific bikes versus do-it-all bikes versus totally custom, very focused on your local region bikes. So you've built up a bunch of very specific for your region bikes. Are you going to yeah. try out some more like traditional cross country bikes, more downhill bikes when you get here to the Northwest, or are you going to try and do more just everything bikes? Yeah. So that's a question I've been wrestling with a fair bit. Um, so I am getting on a mojo or sorry, on a ripmo, um, that I'll be picking up once I get over there. Done. Your last um, bike ever. You won't need any <laughs> more bikes. That's kind of how I feel, you know, like I know that there's some there's some big riding up in the Pacific Northwest, especially as you head up uh, into Washington, Bellingham area, um, kind of around where I'm going to be living. It's going to be a little bit more flow trail, but I still think that's going to be a massively efficient machine, even though it's got, you know, long travel fork and all that stuff going on. Um, but I kind of raised this question in my head the other day of wanting to build up something that was like my park bike that could maybe Ooh, okay. um, be a little more rowdy. So I was thinking like, uh, I was looking at the, the new MRP Bartlett and all that stuff that's coming out with like the dual crown 170 fork and all that. I'm, I'm real curious about what that might look like as something that's not quite a downhill bike, but is kind of beyond a trail bike, you know, and I don't know. I'm not sure what's going to happen there, but I think <sighs> I think I'm going to probably have to build a bike that is or ride a bike that is more all around capable because I do plan on uh, we picked up this Sprinter camper van that we've been building out over the last few months. And the plan is to drive all over and experience a ton of trails. And so I am going to look for a bike. And I think this is where the Ritmo lands that can kind of just do it all pretty dang well. Gotcha. And so I think that's going to be my primary ride, but I have yet to throw a leg over it. So we'll see. <laughs> throw a leg over the Ritmo. Yeah. And try it out on your local trails. Man, I, having owned a Ritmo for um, four months now, you know, I like, I like having a couple other sketchier bikes on hand. I do have a more capable longer travel HD4 mm -hmm. and I've taken it out a couple of times and it's been fun, but I was really jonesing for a sketchier, more out of control bike than the Ritmo because honestly spring conditions in the Northwest made riding too easy on the Ritmo. You had plenty of traction. It wasn't so slippery. You were holding on for, you know, it wasn't so slippery and wet that you're just holding on the whole time. But at the same time, when it gets dry and dusty up here, 
our forest is not like the dry. Things get yeah. way more slippery in the summer than they are in the winter, which is kind of counterintuitive. So we're finally in the dusty season. I don't get to ride right now because of my broken shoulder, but for those two or three Goldilocks months there of like April through late May to the beginning of June, we, we're getting rain like once or twice a week, three times a week, just enough to keep it running good. I was missing the Mojo 3 and just how out of control you can get with those little wheels and not much yep. suspension travel. I was riding all these trails that are like rated blue or, or single black and they're fun, super fun on the Ritmo, totally enjoyable, but you know, like I knew I was going to get down it safely in one piece and I kind of wanted to you know, have that extra bit of adrenaline. You were looking for your California drift when you first got to the north, to the yep. Midwest. And here I am looking for the same thing after <laughs> riding the, like the Ritmo is not too much to tone down. Like the HD4 tones down a lot of these trails that you really have to go breakneck speed to have fun. Ritmo yeah. is still fun at, at almost all the speeds, but you lose a lot of that just out of control feeling of the little wheels and less travel. So I kind of miss it. So would you say in that situation then that uh, you are using the Mojo 3 to uh, basically play to your strengths in that it's challenging them? Like it, because you are such a talented, you know, rider that you're looking to, to make the bike a little less good. Uh, eh, that sounds terrible. The Mojo's a great bike. I'm not trying to say it's less good. Oh, it's but, a great bike. But yeah. like you said, it's... I hadn't it's, thought about it within this context, but I guess we could kind of apply this lens of build to your strength or hide your weakness. And, you know, like I wasn't really considering building it up to be a cross-country whip it. Like I'm not on the light side of things by any means, like 160 pounds, and I should be like 135 pounds if I were to race cross-country. Mm -hmm. And so I was going to build the Mojo 3 up with a Fox 36 fork, a DPX2 rear shock. I've got some 742 wheels, like 2.5 tough casing tires. So it was going to have like the bomber enduro parts all over it. It was just built to be, I just wanted to make it wildly out of control and dangerous by having less travel and little wheels compared to the Ritmo. So I, I don't, maybe that is playing to my weaknesses and covering them up by making it a smaller bike. I don't know. I just, it was a different approach entirely. Yeah, fair enough. Well, I think it's it's definitely an interesting topic that we've landed on here. Um, you know, uh, if if we were, let's do this, right? Internet loves definitive statements. So, <laughs> as Jeff Kendallweed, if you were to say oh, to God. give advice, and we're gonna just you know make a fool of ourselves by giving a definitive statement. Is it uh, in a writer's best interest to accentuate their strengths or is it in a writer's best interest to hide their weakness? Without a doubt, accentuate your strengths. Play to your advantages. If you can't do something well and you want to learn at it, then try to get better at it. But if you're way better at one thing, run with it. That's, if I learned anything over the years, if you're, not, if you're not a plumber, don't try to be a plumber. Hire someone else to don't even deal with it. Just focus on what you're good at and build your bike up to accentuate what you're good at you'll be happier you'll live longer you'll sleep better at night everything will be better yeah well shoot i was really hoping you were going to say the other one because that's what i was going <laughs> on to i'm going with accentuate your strengths it's all about like having the absolute most fun and getting the most brap out of your ride and so if your strengths are in one area hit that hard, hit it hard a lot. Yeah. Now, with that being said, I think that's the N. And I think the hide your weaknesses is the plus one. Totally. So if I have a recommendation, it is do N and then go plus one. So yeah. that's and it. it. I, th 
I think I've made my definitive statement. <laughs> Internet hecklers unite and hit our uh, comment section up. Totally, yeah. Uh, send us an email, podcast at jensenusa.com. <laughs> Let us know how wrong we are. But, you know, at a racing perspective, if I was still racing a lot of Enduros, I probably would be on a little bit lighter weight bike for the races. I would pull out the Ripley LS for mm-hmm. a lot of the more local stuff. I would have small tires on it just because I know those climbs that if you have a one minute climb and there's a 20 minute total overall combined race time that one minute climb is going to be what determines a lot of the finishing order and so i'm happy to give up a second here a second there on the gnarly parts that i have more fun riding in order to hide my weaknesses on that climb because i've learned from example from experience i've just learned that yeah i'm never going to win these races when i'm 30 seconds back on a climb and my bike's super heavy if i can make up that 15 or 20 of those seconds with lighter wheels and tires, the little bit that I lose in the gnarly bits, yeah. But then on the flip side, I'm not getting any pictures on any websites when I'm on the ground and being all super conservative. And if you want to sell bikes, you got to get pictures online and in magazines. You got to get airborne. You got to get gnarly. So depends on your goals too. Yeah, I guess it depends on uh, which, you know, online bike publication is your favorite uh of the day if if you're really into vital and all those kind of things go to the air and if you're into uh going up maybe we need to go to a whole different publication altogether so cool well i think that probably wraps up our our talk here we we made our definitive statements and uh it's been great catching up with you after your trip and we we wish you all the best in healing up and getting back on the bike great to chat with you too seth good luck with your upcoming trip over here to the west coast Yeah. So with that being said, we might be a couple of weeks out before our next episode, just because I will be uh, moving and on the road for several weeks while I cruise across the U.S., checking out cool places and hopefully getting in some rides. And then Jeff and I will get back together and hit some more episodes. Yeah, we're going to keep working on these. If you guys have any other topics you want us to discuss, please email them to us, podcast.jensenusa.com. Be sure to follow the Jensen USA Instagram or Facebook pages and join their email newsletter for an additional heads up when we have a new episode out. Yeah, for sure. And then make sure you check out Jeff's Instagram and YouTube channel. Uh, This guy, even when he's injured, is blowing up with super cool content. He just had one where he did a Fox rear shock rebuild that's super dope. And it's way helpful. That kind of stuff is stuff that you guys can learn how to do and do it confidently and keep your bikes running super dialed. So Jeff is just killing it every week. Make sure you subscribe to his Instagram and YouTube channels. Uh, get inspired by his writing, his education, all that kind of stuff. He's just uh, absolutely killing it. So, so for now, just remember, keep pedaling. <laughs>